Let us pray. Father, thank you that you feed us with your truth. You are the living word. And thank you that you lead us as a faithful, good, trustworthy shepherd. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again, everyone. Good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. And so grateful for the rain we're having as God waters the earth. We've been in quite a season of drought here in Northern Virginia in these past several months. So um, very grateful for that. I invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them. No surprise here. Um, turn to St. Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 5. Today, focusing on verses 10 through 12. And today is our final day of looking at the Beatitudes or blessings found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're actually looking at two blessings today. Um, we're not looking at them together because I'm in a hurry to finish this series. That's not what's going on. But because these two Beatitudes are so closely related in terms of their subject matter. Because both of them deal with blessing in the midst of persecution and adversity. Specifically adversity experienced because of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. <clears throat> As I've stated and we've discussed so many times in this series on the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are first and foremost addressed to disciples of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, to his inner circle of committed followers, and to you and me as believers committed to Jesus. And the Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount give us a picture of how kingdom-ready people live and order their lives. This remains true for these two final Beatitudes, which I just read. However, in verses 11 through 12, this focus becomes even more pronounced than emphatic because we see here in verses 11 through 12 that Jesus shifts from speaking of those or they, in other words, in the third person, as he has in previous Beatitudes, as we read, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied and go on and on. But there's a strong shift here in verses 11 through 12 to the second person. So instead of saying they or those, Jesus is saying you. Blessed are you because great is your reward. He really drives it home in a much more deeply personal way. My sermon today is entitled The Paradox a blessing. As we look at these three verses, we'll see that Jesus is speaking of blessing which comes through adversity, even through outright persecution. But this is not just any kind of persecution. This persecution is for a very specific reason. And we need to take some time this way to look at these reasons and the blessings which Jesus promises faithful Christians. Believers who trust in him and remain faithful even in the face of trials 
and adversities. So my first point this morning is the paradox. What is a paradox? It's not a word, it's a word most of us know or have heard, but not a word we use every day in our conversation. Well, in terms of our uses today, a paradox is something which is seemingly contradictory or opposed to human logic or common sense while still being absolutely true. Let me repeat that. A paradox is something which is seemingly contradictory or opposed to human logic or common sense while being absolutely true. Speaking of human courage, G. J. Kesterton, the Christian author, once wrote, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It's a paradox because it means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. A paradox, a strong desire to live coupled with a readiness to die. The Bible also contains a number of seeming paradoxes. When we think of the nature of our God, the Trinity, who is three in one from human logic and human rationale, that's a paradox. It's something that is beyond human logic or full comprehension. When we look at Jesus Christ, we see a number of seemingly contradictory things which are absolutely true. In his incarnation and his coming to earth as Savior, as Messiah, we have Jesus eternally existent as the Son of God who came to earth as a man remaining fully God, and yet in his incarnation also being fully man, two natures in one being. A paradox beyond human comprehension. And then especially from the Jewish perspective in Jesus' day, the idea of a crucified Messiah seems completely contradictory. In Deuteronomy 21, Scripture tells us that anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed, and then it goes on to say, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And then our redemption, that God can and is willing to do what was necessary to redeem sinful people like you and me in rebellion against God and to transform our lives and our sinful natures and make us new creations in Christ, that is another paradox. <clears throat> in Romans 8 9 we read, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Galatians chapter 5, St. Paul writes, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Then in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the cor corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God takes our sinful hearts and makes them new through Christ. All of these things are paradoxes. Things which when viewed simply with the natural mind are seemingly contradictory, even impossible yet they are absolutely true. <clears throat> we find another of these paradoxes in today's scripture text where Jesus teaches his disciples then and his disciples today, blessed are those who are persecuted, verse 10, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11. Blessing through insult and persecution? That doesn't make sense from the natural or human perspective. And yet Jesus' words here assure us that this is absolutely true. However, Jesus is not speaking of persecution simply for the sake of persecution. He is not talking about persecution that happens for just any reason. Jesus here is talking about persecution for very specific reasons. And this is my second point. First point, the paradox. Second point, the reason. How many of you know that some people are quick to blame things on persecution when this really isn't the case? Have you ever seen that? I think I may have shared this story before, but I'm going to share it again. Dear Christian lady at one of the churches where Tame and I served on staff for a number of years, came into the office one morning. She was on her way to church to do something and was just beside herself and said, oh, Satan is out to get me. I'm being persecuted today. I just got a speeding ticket on the way over here. Well, the reality is, full confession, I've been known to go over the speed limit, okay? But she got a speeding ticket because she was going over the speed limit, not because Satan was out to get her. She was breaking the law, and it happened to be one of those days when a police officer was there with radar. Jesus gives two specific reasons for the persecution, which leads to blessing. The first one is this, in verse 10. Blessing is promised to those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Did you hear that? Because of righteousness. We need to consider what this means. D.A. Carson, who I've quoted so many times in this series in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, says this. The final beatitude does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are objectionable or because they rave like wild-eyed fanatics or because they pursue some religio-political cause. The blessing is restricted to those who suffer because of righteousness. To be persecuted or suffer because of righteousness is to be persecuted because we are determined by God's grace and power to live as both Jesus modeled and taught his disciples to live. This is being persecuted for righteousness because of obedience to God and to his word. Because of choosing even in the face of adversity conduct, to conduct our lives in Christ-like God-honoring ways by God's grace and power. In other words, choosing to live according to the will of God. And the language here indicates that we are not talking simply about theory. Jesus is talking about persecution in real, concrete terms. Jesus is talking about living righteously daily in our homes, in the workplace, in the marketplace, wherever God takes us. <clears throat> And persecution because of righteousness is to be expected by Jesus' disciples in every age if we are truly seeking to live out the righteousness of his kingdom in real and practical ways. Hear what we read in 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, if we are seeking to live godly lives, we need to understand that the character and qualities of the kingdom of heaven and Christ's rule in our lives will inevitably clash with the characteristics and the values of this world and Satan. There's no way around it. That's the way it is. And we will be persecuted. We will be maligned. It may be in great ways. Christians around the world suffer incredible persecution day in and day out that is very foreign to most of us. But it also happens in small and more subtle ways. When people say things about Christians or committed Christians, well, a literal religion is okay, but he or she takes it too far. And often what that is code for, Sunday morning social religion or Christianity is okay. But don't yield to God's transforming life and being conformed to the image of Christ in our lives because that makes us, everybody else, uncomfortable. A real, little religion is okay, but she won't even cheat on her taxes. Or I offered him a box of binders for his kids to use at school out of the company stock and he wouldn't take it because he said that would be stealing. Or he put more hours on his time card or he wouldn't rather put more hours on his time card than he worked when he slipped out early because that would be stealing from his employer the time that was owed. Did you see she didn't even smile when I told that off-color joke? I have a dear brother in Christ quite a few years ago now before I was in ministry who was in another state, which will remain unnamed, um, pretty high up as a social worker in the state system, pretty high administrative level, and tremendous pressure came upon him to falsify and embellish um, state records so that they could get more, in that state, more federal Medicaid funding. And when he refused to do that, specifically because he said that is dishonest, he was ostracized and eventually, by people very high in levels of the state government, forced out of that position because he wouldn't falsify and fabricate the numbers. Now, as we act in godly righteousness, Jesus is not willing and nor does he cause to speak condemnation upon people, not at all. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, Genuine, humble, godly righteousness convicts people by implication. And people will at times lash out in retaliation when they're trying to stiff arm the gracious conviction of God. But it cannot be because of us, but because of Christ in us. The fact is, truly righteous living divides people. People are either repelled by God's conviction or they are drawn to Jesus the Savior. Blessing is promised when we are persecuted because of true righteousness. Second, 
Isn't this an uplifting, exciting word today? It actually is because God promises us blessing in these things. But the second, Jesus promises blessing when people insult us, persecute us, and falsely say all kinds of evil against us. But here's the catch. Because of him, verse 11. Again, not because you or I are being obnoxious, but because of him. <clears throat> Insults, mocking, verbal abuse directed at you, directed at us, expect it. Persecution, really antagonistic behavior directed for, toward believers simply because we are committed above everything and anyone else to live for Jesus and order our lives according to the values and priority of his kingdom, expect it. Falsely saying all kinds of evil, expect to be defamed. Expect to have what you say misrepresented. Expect to be maligned. And again, not because we're being obnoxious or carnal, but because of the savor of Christ in us. Philippians 1.29 tells us this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In 2 Timothy 3.12, we read, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In 1 Thessalonians 3.2-4, St. Paul writes, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And again, yes, sometimes that persecution takes really big or overt forms, even forms that would cause Christians to have to lay down their lives for the cause of the gospel. But it need not take big forms to actually be persecution. It can be either way. But the reasons, one, because of righteousness, two, because of Jesus, the reason. And then finally, thirdly, the blessing. What is promised to believers who remain faithful even in the midst of trial and persecution? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10. Your reward is great in heaven, verse 12. The reward for being persecuted because of righteousness is the kingdom of heaven. And to be clear, that is a citizenship that begins right here, right now, for those who fully trust Jesus. We are, as believers in Christ, people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we are already saint citizens of Christ's heavenly eternal kingdom. And this beatitude really serves as a test for all of the Beatitudes. Because just as we must be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3, so too will we will be persecuted for righteousness if we have truly entered the kingdom of heaven. And that makes this a rather searching Beatitude, or these Beatitudes, both of them, rather searching. And it raises the question for us, if I never experience any persecution or adversity in my life, 
Where is godly righteousness being displayed in and through me? And if there is no display of righteousness through both my character and my conduct, am I really being conformed to the image of Christ and to God's will? Am I being conformed to the image of Jesus? And if these essential qualities are not evident in my life, where do my ultimate loyalties really rest? In this world and its trappings or in the kingdom of heaven? Do I really and truly demonstrate the characteristic marks of someone whose ultimate citizenship is in heaven with Christ? Do I demonstrate evidence in my life of having been truly and radically transformed by Jesus? Doesn't mean we're perfect, but is the irrefutable evidence there? We need to ask God to search our hearts, beginning with my heart in this regard. And the prophets of old become a model for us in this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 with me, if you would. Hebrews 11 verses 32 through 38. <clears throat> and what more shall I say? For, some some, for a time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, but became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But it's not just the Old Testament prophets. We read this in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. We also see examples time and time again down through church history from the early church through the Middle Ages and the Reformation and all the way to the present day. There's one example that um, came to mind in preparing this sermon that I wanted to share with you. Um, someone most of you probably aren't familiar with, a um, pastor and um, evangelist in the early 20th century named Fred Bosworth, also known as F.F. Bosworth, who was brutally beaten in August 1911, and he wrote an accounting of that. He was beaten in Texas because he was holding racially integrated services, and he wrote this. I was tired and thought I wouldn't preach that night, but the people wanted me to, and then God anointed me for it. And I was on my way to spend the night with another white preacher who had also come that day. We were attacked by several roughs, one of whom had a revolver with which, as he and others cursed us from, for coming there, and as they said, put them on a level with and 
they used a very derogatory word for African Americans, they seemed determined to shoot us both down at once. God was wonderfully with me, and with perfect coolness, I told them that I was doing God's will the very best I knew how, was ready to die, and would offer no resistance to anything God permitted them to do. But if they had no objections, I would like to speak a few words of explanation before they shot us. At first, they refused me this privilege, but finally said I could say what I wanted to. I told them that I came with no thought or desire of pushing them on a level with anyone, but that it was the white people who had invited me to come to help them, that I had done the very best I knew and was willing to take anything God permitted. With this explanation, they decided not to kill, but insisted that we should take the next train. And so we went to the depot and I bought my ticket to Dallas and the other brother went to his room for his suitcase. And while he was gone, I was waiting for my train and a larger mob of about 25 took me from the depot and knocked me down and pounded me with heavy hardwood clubs with all their power, cursing and declaring that I would never preach again when they were through with me. As they pounded me with these heavy clubs made from the oar of a boat, I offered no resistance, but committed myself to God and asked him not to let the blows break my spine. God stood wonderfully by me and no bones were broken except a slight fracture in my left wrist. When they let off pounding me with clubs as I got up, others of the mob who had no clubs knocked me down, hitting me in the head with their fists. I was knocked down several times, but was not for a moment unconscious, which was a miracle of God's care. I was then not allowed to take my train, but had to walk nine miles to Calvert, where I got a train Sunday at 2 p.m. for home. The suffering during this pounding was terrible, but as soon as it was over, I looked away from my wounds and bruises to God, and he took away the suffering and put the power and strength upon me so that I carried my heavy suitcase with my right arm over nine miles. I never had the slightest anger or real feeling toward those men who beat me so cruelly, and the walk and the walk to Calvert in the dark with moonlight was the most heavenly experience of my life. And the Lord gave me wonderful intercession for those men that he should forgive them and prepare them for his coming. My flesh was mashed to the bone on my back, nearly to my knees. Others have been nervous and have broken down and wept as they were shown the wounds on my body. But he has been so precious to me since that I have thanked him many times for being privileged to know something of the fellowship of his sufferings. If this mobbing was the result of some unwise thing I had done or for speaking anything but his own sweet message, I would be very sorry. But since it came from plain obedience and preaching his gospel to every creature, it, was give, it has given me great joy to experience this which was so common among the early Christians in the first centuries of the church. The apostles left rejoicing, we read in Acts. Christians throughout the ages, despite tremendous suffering, have been blessed by God to rejoice in the midst of suffering and persecution. Jesus commanded us, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. The truths Jesus teaches here are completely contrary to the thinking of the world and the culture around us. They're at odds with the world around us as much as anything can be. And quite tragically, the reality is they are contrary to thinking of some people even in the church who equate adversity somehow with a lack of God's blessing. And yet scripture is explicitly clear. Jesus is saying the very opposite here. And he zeroes in, not they or them or those, but you. 
you and me. He zeroes in on those who are hearing his words, on his disciples, both in the Sermon on the Mount and in, he focuses in on you and me this very day. Those who are hearing his word read, hearing his word proclaimed. And I believe the question he speaks to me and to you are, are you, am I prepared to identify with Jesus Christ and to stand firm in his grace and righteousness at any cost? These Beatitudes, but all of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount can be hard sayings when viewed with the natural eye, with viewed, when viewed from the flesh. And they are absolutely impossible to accomplish or see lived out as reality if we try to do it in and of ourselves. Don't even try because we cannot. But as we surrender to Christ, as we yield and open our lives ever more fully to him, he makes these blessings of his kingdom a reality here and now. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ours as followers of Christ, as we yield to him, as he works in us, ours is the kingdom of heaven. May we continually seek to yield our lives to Jesus to open ourselves more fully to his grace and power and his working in us so that we grow to become evermore those outposts of the kingdom of heaven right here, right now, where God has placed us to be that salt and light, that savor of Christ in the world that brings godly conviction and transformation in other people's lives, not because of what we do, but because of the reality of truth and the truth of Christ and the spirit of God flowing out from us. And as we do that, may God, by his grace and power, continue to use us to see many brought into his kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we marvel at your grace. We marvel at the paradoxes of your kingdom, that you would take sinners such as us and redeem us and transform us and set us free and make us new creations in you ever increasingly being conformed to the image of your son, Jesus, as we yield to your plan and purpose in our lives. Father, thank you for the blessings and the promise and the beatitudes. And Lord, thank you that we don't have to try to do this stuff in ourselves or on our own. We can't. But Lord, you invite us into this blessed life by your work in us. So, Lord, take us and continue to mold us and shape us, renew us, conform us to your will that we could be used as your instruments and your, for, your, for your purposes in this time, in this place, that we could truly be outposts of your kingdom, shining the light of Jesus in a dark and dying world who desperately, desperately needs to know Christ's love and his transforming power. So, Lord, we ask you to continue to do this in ever greater measure. And we pray these things trusting you in Jesus' name. Amen.